1 John 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time. Pray that you would use it to work and transform our hearts by your love. Amen. So good morning. We're going to get right to work. So if you got your Bible with you, let's open up to 1 John, and we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, we started a sermon series. We're working our way through this book of the Bible. Uh, we started this on April 28th. So we are three months into this, and we're, we're taking our good, slow time, not rushing through this book of the Bible. We're almost done after today. We're only going to have a couple more Sundays in this book, in this sermon series. Um, if you've missed any of the messages over the last three months through this series, I highly encourage you to catch up, invest a little bit of time, and listen to, uh, to the messages. You can do it through two different means you could do it through our website so anthem-church.org just click on the resources tab and you can listen to messages there or you can download for free our our mobile church app on your phone you can download it there and you can listen to all our messages that way and and I encourage that not because I think I have some silky smooth voice or anything like that uh, but it's because that I hope that the messages have been helpful or are helpful in us grasping the truth that is contained in first John uh, what this book tells us is of utter vital importance 
It's only as we understand and conform to the words that are written in the book of 1 John. It's only then that we can begin to live life in the know. Now, I know that there's an expression that we all like and use often. Ignorance is bliss. And yeah, maybe in some ways, at some point, at some time, in certain circumstances, it might be. But the truth of the matter is that, that ignorance of the truth is of no value. The truth is that nothing good comes out of being ignorant. Nothing good comes out of it. It's just way better to know the truth than to be ignorant of the truth. So, uh, real quick, what's better, knowing where you are or being lost? It's just way better to know where you be. It's just better. Where am I at and where am I going? Which direction am I pointing? It's just better. What's better, not knowing that you have stage one cancer or knowing that you have stage one cancer so that you can do something about it? It's just better to know. It's just way better. What's better, not knowing how you're going to pay that month's bills or knowing where the money is coming from to pay that month's bills? Knowing is better. It's better. Thinking something is true, wishing something's true, guessing something's true, hoping something's true is inferior to knowing that something is true. So imagine you're in a car accident, and it's a bad one. You're bleeding out. All right, so you need to get to the hospital with the quickness. Ambulance shows up. Paramedics strap you to the gurney. They throw you in the back of the ambulance. And as you're sitting there, you hear the driver say, I, I think the hospital's this way. I'm telling you, in that moment, that's not what you want to hear. In that moment, you're screaming. You're screaming. You better pull this up on your phone. You better find it on Google Maps, GPS it, do whatever you got to do because I have got to get to the hospital. I think that the hospital is this way. It's just simply not good enough. It's just too much of a gamble, right? He better know the quickest way to the hospital. Why? Because your life depends on it. Well, that's, that's why we're going through the book of 1 John. It was given to us that we may know that we have eternal life. And guess what? Our life depends on it. We're talking about eternal life. It says in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So you don't need to wonder, how do I get to heaven? You don't need to wonder, am I going to heaven? We can know. The book of 1 John tells us how we can know. We can live life in the know, knowing that God has blessed us with eternal life. So I've said this for three months, that, and you're probably sick and tired of it, just a couple more weeks. The book of 1 John offers us a series of spiritual tests by which we evaluate our lives to see whether or not, in fact, we have received eternal life. And so today we're taking what I'm calling the construction test, the construction test. So if you've been around here for 30 years in this area, you would know that I-40, 
There has not been a portion of I-40 between Chapel Hill and the east side of Raleigh that has not been under construction. That section of road has been perpetually and constantly under construction for at least 30 years that I'm aware of. They're always adding lanes, widening lanes. They're making all sorts of improvements. Here's another bypass. Here's another exit, right? They're, they're lengthening the on-ramp or the off-ramp. They're constantly making improvements to it. It is always under construction. I don't think they'll ever finish. There's barricades and barriers and equipment and dirt and all kinds of stuff. There's always the cones, and it's just, it's just always under construction. That's how it is for those of us who have received eternal life. We are God's construction project. It says in Philippians 1.6, I am aware of this, that he, referring to God, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So at the moment that we place our faith in Jesus, we become God's construction project. That he will at some point, unlike the DOT in Wake County in North Carolina, unlike them, God will in fact bring this to, to completion. But in the meantime, in this life, God is perpetually at work in us. He is constantly transforming us into people who reflect his love. So his love comes into our lives, his love comes into our heart, and all of a sudden, God starts adding lanes of love into our life. God starts widening the lanes. He starts like, expanding our capacity to be loving. He starts uh, improving us in such a way that we can love people more often and love people more deeply. From the moment we say yes to Jesus, God starts this work. And this is what we see in 1 John 4, 7 through 21. This is a construction test. Those who haven't received eternal life are being made complete in the love of God, by the love of God, and for the love of God. We are constantly under construction in the hands of God. Always. Perpetually. So... You need to like ask yourself and evaluate, well, do, is there evidence of that in your life? Is God at work? Can you say, yep, compared to last week, compared to five years ago, I, yeah, there's, there's evidence that God is adding lanes to my heart and my capacity. He's improving my capacity to, to love more deeply and to love more often. Is there evidence in your life that you're growing as a loved, love-filled follower of Jesus? And this is how we know we have eternal life. We know by our love for others, for God and for others. So in the verses that we're looking at today, so 1 John 4, 7 through 21, the word love in just those 14 verses appears 29 times. Either that word or some variation of the word love. 29 times in 14 verses. I think it's safe to say that these verses are about love. Thank you. And, and honestly, there's so much here, I'm not even going to attempt to just go line by line, verse by verse. I'm basically just going to hit some highlights. There's a lot of repetition here. We're just going to camp out on some very important stuff. We begin in verse 7 with a command, which says, let us love one another. In these 14 verses, we're told at least four different times 
love others, love your brother, love other people. He who doesn't love is, is wrong. You know, like love, it's, it's a key component to this text. Notice in verse 7, the command is not to love. The command is to love one another. The truth is that none of us have a problem loving. None of us have a problem with it. We can't help but love. We love all day long. We are gold medal winners when it comes to love. The problem for us is not love. The problem for us is the direction in which we aim love. We aim it in the wrong direction, folks. We love ourselves. We love to love ourselves. Self-love is as natural to us as breathing. You get up in the morning, you go about your day without even thinking about it. You spend your day pursuing your agenda, seeking your interests, seeking whatever it is that benefits you. Folks, that's love, is it not? Now, what's interesting is that the Bible never, ever tells us to love ourselves. Not one single time in any shape, form, or fashion. I believe the reason why is because self-love is, in fact, not love. Self-love is something different. Self-love is called selfishness. Self-love is called self-centeredness. It's narcissism. Our mission at Anthem Church is to fill Andrew and the world with love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus. What does that love-filled part mean? To be love-filled means that we are submitting our own personal interests to the interests of another person. It means putting someone else ahead of ourselves. So it says in Philippians 2, verses 2 through 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is love. Selflessness is love. Putting others first ahead of ourselves. You know what love is? Love is looking out for number one, so long as number one ain't you. So long as number one is, well, God and others, yes, look out for number one, so long as it's not you. Love is an attitude of benevolence, benevolence that is extended and directed to another person. It's kindness that is directed toward another person. It's it's an active posture in which we are seeking the good of another person, even if it comes at personal sacrifice. What love is, is being willing to be put out for the good of another person. Giving of time, money, effort, talent, skill, sleep, whatever it may be. Giving for the good of another person, that's what love is. Now, if that's what love is, and that is in fact what love is, I don't think this comes easily to us, does it? 
Like if love is sacrifice and selflessness, it does not come easily. It does not come quickly. And the reason why is because there's this ugly gravitational force within us that is constantly trying to draw everything in toward us. And that ugly gravitational force is called sin. We're born with this sin nature, this predisposition that the thought of sacrificing for someone we like instinctively recall at. The sin is at, always at work in this 24 hours a day, seven days a week, saying, put someone else first. Nah. You know what? Fine. I'll help somebody as long as I got mine. As long as I got mine, I'll give whatever anyone else needs. But until then, I'm not giving anything. Sound familiar? We all hear it. It's not just me. It's not just me. Or maybe it is. Fine, fine. Okay, today's Rick's confession time. I'm a selfish, selfish cuss, okay? Right? And I'm, I'm riddled in sin, unlike you holy people out there looking at me like I'm talking strange. I know I'm not the only one. Thank you, Daniel. No, there's this thing in us that's like, no, I want mine. I'm going to get mine. You're not going to get what's mine because mine is mine. i got to look out for me. That's sin. And it's because that is such a real thing in us that we're told in verse 7, let us love one another. Those two words, let us, are telling. They're, t- they're revealing. The fact that it says let us actually means that there is a choice in whether or not I choose to love. It reveals a choice that there is a decision that each and of, of us has to make each and every day, all day long, a decision whether or not I'm going to choose to be loving toward a person or toward a person in a specific situation. And there has to be a choice and a commitment to that choice. I, I need to choose. I need to choose to let go of my selfishness and allow my love then to go to other people outwardly out there. So this is the construction test. Do you see evidence of this in your life? Are you choosing more often today than a year ago or 10 years ago to be loving? Are you choosing more often to let go of selfishness in order that your love may be directed selflessly and sacrificially toward Another person. Do you see evidence of God reworking your heart, rebuilding, constructing your heart in such a way that you are benevolent and giving and charitable and helpful? So growing as a love-filled follower of Jesus is the evidence that we have received eternal life. It's the evidence of it. So look at verses 7 and 8. It says in those verses there, whoever loves has been born of God. Did you see that? Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Love, right there it says it flat out. Love is the evidence of a person having received eternal life. Now, those verses, let me tell you what they don't say. Those verses do not say that a Christian loves perfectly all of the time. That is not what those verses say. What it means there is that those who have received eternal life are in a constant daily battle to be loving. 
They're engaged actively in this battle. So those of us who know, who know God, we are tempted to be selfless or selfish. We're tempted to be selfish. But we battle with that selfishness every day so that we don't give in to that selfishness every day. Those of us who've received eternal life, man, we're tempted. When we see someone in need, we're tempted to ignore it. We're, we're tempted to look away, to turn our heads so we're, we don't be bothered. We're tempted to it, but ultimately, those of us who've received eternal life, we don't give up on being loving. We don't give up on love. So, for my money, the Rocky movies are up there. Top three, in particular, the first three Rocky movies. Four, kind of, sort of, but that was weird. Like, that got cartoonish. But the first three, those are, then there are some good movies. All right? And, and I, I love the story of the, the underdog. And I know that's part of it. So, here you have this bum from the streets of Philadelphia. And he's a thug, and he's a boxer. He's just barely making ends meet. And, and just on a gimmick, he gets a shot at the heavyweight championship. So he gets a shot at Apollo Creed and taking the belt from Apollo Creed. Well, that's in Rocky One. What happens? He loses. He, he looks like rotten meatloaf at the end of it, so I don't know what good that did him, but he fought and he loses. But then Rocky Two. He fights Apollo Creed again. And what happens this time? He wins, right? He becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. Then you go to Rocky Three, And then he has to fight Mr. T, Clever Lang, right? Clever Lang, what do you predict? I predict pain. You know, and, so, and he brought the pain because he absolutely mopped the ring with Rocky Balboa. But what happens at the end of the movie? They fight again, and who wins? Rocky. Rocky wins. Now, here's the thing. He did not beat Apollo Creed because he's a better boxer than Apollo Creed because he was not. He did not beat Clever Lane because he was a stronger fighter than Clever Lane because he was not. He beat them because he had the heart of a champion. Right? He had the heart. <laughs> Someone like that line? Yeah, actually, you, felt, you felt that, right? <laughs> I was trying to ignore it, but then everyone, no one let me here. He had the heart of a champ. I don't even know where I was at. So he takes, he takes punch after punch in these movies. Punch after, and he's getting beat up. Like the entire, all three movies. He's just beat up the entire time. Again, he looks like rotten meatloaf at the end of all of these movies. It's ridiculous. He gets beat up. He gets knocked down. But what happens every time? He's constantly doing what? He's getting up. He's getting up. He's getting up. And he keeps battling. He keeps battling. He keeps coming. Folks, in Christ, we are a bunch of Rocky Balboas. If you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God has given you eternal life. And on top of that, he has given you a new heart a heart of a champion, a loving champion. So yes, selfishness will knock us down, but it has not KO'd us. We get up. 
We get up and we keep battling. We don't throw in the towel on selfishness and self-centeredness. No, we get up and we keep going. We keep fighting. So when our sin says, hey, don't forgive that person who wronged you because they don't deserve to be forgiven, our new heart punches back. It gets up off the canvas. It punches back and it says, I choose love. That's the heart that God has given us. When our sin is aware that there's a person nearby in need of help, but then our sin says, you know what, don't help out. You've had a hard week. You're tired. You deserve some me time. Let someone else handle it. Our sin says that, but our new heart says what? I choose love. I choose love. So we are going to stagger. We're going to stumble we're going we're gonna to struggle through this, but we make it through life with Tweety Birds flying around. I'll tell you the truth. We're not going to win every round. And sin, our own sin, is going to get in some nasty shots, some gut punches, and some right across the chin, and it's going to make us Tweety-headed. But if we've received eternal life, we fight the good fight. You get knocked down, you get back up because Christians don't quit. Christians choose love. We strive with everything that is in us, relying on the Holy Spirit who is in us to always choose kindness and compassion. We choose to be merciful and gracious. We choose to deny ourselves and to put others first. We choose to serve and to sacrifice, to give, to be uh, benevolent, to be charitable, to give of our time, to give of whatever's needed for anyone who is in need. We choose grace, love, mercy, kindness, compassion. We choose to be a blessing. We choose love. Now, the reason this is so important for us today The reason love is the evidence that we have received eternal life is because of the truth that is revealed to us about God in verse 8 and also in verse 16. In those two verses, you'll find three words that say God is love. God is love. This right here, those three words together are the pinnacle, the very peak of what distinguishes Christianity from every other faith, religion, and worldview on the planet. Those three words are the distinguishing mark of the Christian faith. I know that we live in this time where the popular thought is, well, all religions are the same. Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, Wiccans, Muslims, They all worship the same God. They're just all on different paths to the same destination. This is what the world says. Honestly, I think that that's patently disrespectful. It is insane, illogical, and absurd, but it's actually disrespectful. I will go so far as to say I actually respect the 
Hindu or the Buddhist or the Muslim or the Wiccan way too much to say that what they believe is the same as mine. I, I, there's too much of a difference for me to be that utterly patently disrespectful. Say, like, yeah, there's no difference between what we believe. So let me make my point. Did you know that Buddhists are atheists? It's a religion. They're atheists. They do not believe in God or a God or gods. They deny the existence of anything that is divine. There is no divinity in the Buddhist religion. For them, what they believe is that all of existence is simply this eternal flow of energy and consciousness. That's what a Buddhist believes. A Hindu actually does believe in God, called Brahman. It's divine, but it's not relational, whatever that entity is. And for them, their God is one and the same with the universe. There is no difference between what they claim to be God and what material universe is. So for them, tree is God, God is tree. Okay. No distinction. That which is divine and that which is material are the same and equals. That's very different than a Buddhist. So what about a Wiccan? Wiccans believe in two gods. But in their religion, these gods are not personal beings. They're facets of an impersonal cosmic force. That's what they believe. Then you got the Muslim who believes in an actual God, Allah. And that God is a personal, not a personal, I'm sorry, but a divine being. But that being, that God, does not partake of a personal relationship with people. Uh, The only real uh, interaction that Allah has with humans is simply as judge. That's the Muslim God. Now, You take just those four different groups, and can it be said that they worship the same God? No. It's it's illogical and absurd because those four different positions are mutually exclusive and contradictory. They just are. So it's disrespectful to say that they believe the same thing or that they're passed to the same destination. It cannot be so. Well, now let's consider Christianity. Let's consider the God of the Christian faith. Verse 8 and verse 16 both say God is love. So here is God who is all-powerful, omnipotent God. He is the unstoppable force and the immovable object, and he is love. The Christian God is the God of creation. He is the creator. He spoke everything out of nothing. There was a time when there was nothing and just God and God spoke and everything that came into existence came into existence simply because he spoke it. He is all-powerful and he is love. And, And so there's a distinction between God and creation, and he rules over every minute detail of the universe and heaven and earth and everything that is in it. He organizes everything. He orchestrates everything. He choreographs everything. He is a God of sovereignty, and he is love. 
He is divine and he is eternal and he is love. He is immeasurable and unfathomable and infinite and he is love. Folks, there is no other religion that paints a picture of God like this. No other religion says God is love. None. Not a single one. Just ours. Our God, the Christian God, the God of the Bible, stands apart and he stands alone. He is the one, the only, the true living God, the God of all glory, of all power, of all wisdom, and all knowledge. And he is love, personal God, love. And so what does it mean that God is love? It means that he is loving is what it means. It means that he is graciously predisposed towards us. It means that he has chosen to be merciful and to be kind toward us. It means that he has willed to exercise his goodness toward us. It means that he has personally identified with our welfare. God is loving personally intimately and relationally God is love and the greatest attestation of that truth is what we see in verses 9 and 10 which say in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love Not that we have loved God, but that he loves us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. In verse 9, there's that word manifest. The word manifest means to make an appearance, to appear. So the love of God appeared on earth when he sent his son here to earth. And it was an act of love because the father sent the son as verse 10 says, to be a propitiation of our sins. Big fancy word, propitiation, which refers to a sacrifice that is offered for the sake of atonement. Another fancy word. All right, what does that mean? Atonement, to make amends. To make reparations for damages. So the Father sent the Son. God the Father sent God the Son. We know him as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to be a sacrifice, to die on a cross, and there, through what he did on the cross, pay for our sins, make amends, make reparations for damage. That is love. You know, like this week, I'm, like, I'm reading all these books. Like, I, I need more insight about love, and there's all these formal definitions that are like four paragraphs long, and I'm reading them, I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, I don't even know what that, those words mean. I don't think we need to worry so much about defining what love is as much as describing it. And I just describe it simply. The Father loved us, and he sent his Son to die for us. That is love. Because the truth is, we're all born sinners. All of us sin. We lie. True? Some of you just lied. It's true. We gossip. Man, we beat people up. We tear people down with our words. Sexual immorality all over the place. We belittle people. We're greedy. We're covetous. We're prideful. 
Man, we're angry. Jeez, we're angry. Bunch of hulks running around everywhere. Angry, impatient. How cruel are we? Man, if someone had a, a little microphone in, in a lot of our homes, because at church we all look like our, we're the Waltons. But I, might, I wonder what that conversation was like in the car heading here this morning. Or what it was like getting the kids to brush their teeth in the bed last night. Man, we're cruel. And we, we think that the universe revolves around us, don't we? Absolutely we do. We get mad when things don't go our way. Why? Because everyone here and everything here was clearly made to serve me. So I get put off when it doesn't. Because that's what it's there for. That's what you're there for. Because we are world-class, award-winning sinners. Greedy, covetous, all the time. You think we got paid to sin. Some of us do. We invent ways of sinning. There are entire industries on the planet that are just, we're just inventing ways of sinning. We fantasize about it, don't we? What courses through our thoughts most days? I wish I could tell them off. I won't because I won't get fired, but I would if I could. So we're, we're literally like lusting over the opportunity to be cruel to someone. Because we fantasize about sin. All the time. This is, this is our legacy. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is how we live. And the thing is that that's not some unfortunate reality. It is, in fact, disastrous. It's not just sad. It's disastrous. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. This is the calamity that we are born into. We're not just born sinners. We're born into sin. We're born dead in our sin. We're born on death row. We're born with a death sentence. We're born with a yoke around our neck, a yoke of condemnation. Folks, we can't help but sin. We can't help but sin from the time we are born every day. We can't help it. And each and every time we sin, each one of those instances, the wages of sin is death. Each one of those deserves eternal punishment from a holy and righteous God who created us to worship him. That's calamity, is it not? But... God is love. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God provided the means by which the power of sin would be removed off of us to free us from the eternal consequences of this stuff that we do that we should not do. So here comes Jesus, the Son of God, sent by God, the Father, sent here. And Jesus goes to the cross. And on that cross, he bore our guilt and our shame, our trespasses, our transgressions, all of it, he bore it in order to make reparations. In order to make 
atonement. In order to make amends, he paid the cost of our wages, the wages of our sin. He paid it in full upon that cross through his broken body and his shed blood. On that cross, he endured torment and suffering that we may be spared that we may receive mercy and forgiveness, to have every sin removed as far as the east is from the west. Jesus did it all on the cross for each and every one of us. He died for us. He showed his love for us in that he died for us while we were still sinners. Folks, that is love. Sacrifice, selflessness, Jesus is love. So that verse, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, right? But it doesn't end there. That verse also says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is a gift of God's grace, which he freely offers through his son, Jesus Christ. And all we need to do is to receive it. Take possession of of it. And the way you grab hold of the grace of God in eternal life is through faith. Faith is our heart reaching out, giving itself over to that which God gives us. That's how we grab on to this incredible promise of God. If you believe in the Son of God, repent of your sin and give your life through Him, you will be saved. You will receive eternal life. You'll receive a brand new heart. You'll get everything that God offers. So the question is, have you received it? Have you reached out in faith and humbled yourself and submitted yourself to the love of God? I don't mean, I'm not asking, have you heard it? I'm not asking if your parents believe it. I'm not even saying or asking whether you even want to believe it. I'm asking you, have you? Have you taken hold of it? Have you? Because if you have, you have received eternal life. And if you've never crossed that, crossed that threshold ever before, you can do so right now where you're sitting in the privacy of your own heart. Just reach out to God in faith and pray to him, Lord, I've been running from you. I want to give my life to you. I believe in your love. I trust in your love. I'm going to follow after you because other stuff in the world makes no sense. And I give myself to you now. And if you do that, you receive eternal life. Verse 18 in the text says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, those who've received the love of God, we don't fear. We don't fear. Why? Because God is with us. Because we're in right standing with him. Because our future is guaranteed safe and sound in the hands of God. There is no fear. He's our father. He's leading me. He's protecting me. He's guiding me. He's my leader. There is no fear for those who receive the love of God. What's interesting is that in that verse 18, the word perfected means made complete. So what we're told there is that those who reject the love of God cannot be made complete because the only thing that makes us complete is the love of God. The only thing that can make us whole, that can perfect us, that can make us what we're supposed to be, the only thing is being in a loving 
personal covenant relationship with the God who created you. He created each and every one of us that we may enjoy that relationship with him. He made us in a, in a unique way that we would hear from him and that he would hear from us. It's called praying, right? That we would interact, that he speaks and we speak to him. We're made to know him and to interact with him, to experience him in our lives. We were created in such a way that he is meant to be involved in a part of our lives, that we would love him and he love us. And that's what makes us whole. That's what makes us right. Nothing makes sense apart from that. So when we say yes to the love of God, it's in that moment that he begins this process of perfecting us, of making us complete. It's at that moment when we say yes to the love of God that we become his construction project. His love comes into our our heart and starts adding lanes. His love comes into our hearts and starts widening the lanes. Starts adding the capacity to love, to reflect his love in a selfless and sacrificial way. When he comes into our lives, we begin to grow as givers and as servants, as people who are helpful and a blessing, people who are quick to forgive and to extend grace. We, we start growing as people who deny ourselves and put others first, and we will struggle. You will struggle mightily. You will struggle with selfishness and with self-centeredness. But then we remember God is love, and we remember what he did for us And with that reminder, we pick ourselves back up and we choose love. We then let ourselves love others. So this is the construction test. Verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Love is the evidence that we've received eternal life. Love is the evidence that God is perfecting us and making us complete. So, if you were to sit back and evaluate your heart and your life, what would be true of you? Do you see yourself growing as a love-filled follower of Jesus? Is there evidence of God at work in you? Building your capacity to love others. Are you choosing love more and more often? It is in loving one another, in loving others, it's in that that we know that we have received eternal life. So I'm going to ask you all to just bow your heads and close your eyes. Ask the praise team to come forward. And we're going to do, as with all your eyes closed and your heads bowed, we're going to do something just slightly different today, right now. Normally, at this time, we end in a closing song. We're going to end in two. Because I think that these two songs summarize everything that I just shared. That but God, rich in mercy, because of that, we are alive in Christ. And so then we're going to ask, after singing that praise, we're going to ask him to build in us a new kind of life. A life in which we love him and love others. 
Lord, Father, I pray this morning. I pray that all of us would know your love deeply and richly. Not just know about it, but to experience it. Lord, you have not left us in our darkness. You have not left us in despair. You have not left us hopeless. You have not left us to our own. You love us. And so you want to intervene in our lives to protect us from our sin, Lord. To correct our lives, Lord. To remove us off of that cliff that we're staring at. Lord, you do not want eternal punishment for us or judgment. You want eternal life for us where we will be with you forever and ever. And that could start right now for someone in this room. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here who has never just given their life to this wonderful, beautiful, good news of Jesus, Lord, that they would do so now, that you would knock on their heart and that they would say, yes, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I want to follow you. I want to know you. I want to experience you, your truth, and your grace in my life. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I, I give my life to you, Lord, to follow you, to learn and to grow. Lord, change me, build me, make me new. That I may love you and others the way that I should, Lord. And I pray for all of us that we would walk in your love fully and deeply, every moment of our lives. May that be the fuel that gets us through the day. When things go wrong, let us remember, but God, rich in mercy, but God is love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.